Hi, it's Jason Schneiderman. Um, question is, why do I host all of these reading series? Um, for a while, I was hosting Monday Night KGB. I've been doing that for about six years. This is my third year doing Bryant Park. And I do the reading series for my uh, college. So for a few years, I was running three reading series, which is too much. Um, it does get to be a lot. Um, but why? What do I, why do I do this? Why do I get out of it? Why do I like um, asking people to come read? The answer is that there's something really magical to me about a live reading. And I know that we're kind of at this moment of digital culture. Um, we're sort of at this incipient moment of digital culture where it is now very easy to hear a poet reading their work. Um, almost all of the major journals at this point, the Poem a Day from Poets.org, uh, Poetry Foundation, The New Yorker, they ask for sound files when you publish a poem with them. And so I think that hearing a poet read their work is actually a more common experience in the last five years than it was when I was coming up. So in the 1990s, if you wanted to hear a poet read their work, you know, someone might have a recording of Sylvia Plath reading Daddy and you know, you'd sit around and it would be shocking that this poem that you've been reading in your poetry anthologies all your life is being read in this like weird, like, Daddy, you do not do, you do not do. And you're like, what? What? How is that? You know, and it, and it was so different from what you had imagined. And I had a very strong sense at the time that I was learning to write, that the poem is more or less complete on the page. That what we do is we choreograph the line in order to send our poems out into the world so that they're choreographed for the internal voice of the reader who encounters them. And so I thought of my own reading of Daddy by Sylvia Plath, for example, as real or as legitimate in the same way that, you know, I see millions of productions of Twelfth Night. I really like Twelfth Night. Um, and they do different things with the play. And I, and I think of both of those things as kind of the performance and the play are kind of both versions of the piece. It's not like a movie where, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, Sleepless in Seattle. And maybe you read the novelization of Back to the Future or something, but the Back to the Future is the movie. It, it's complete in this one particular kind of work. And so I think that gave me a kind of fascination with poets reading their own work. And I loved the reading series when I was an undergraduate. I loved when they would bring a poet to campus. And a lot of times I would discover things in their voice or in their reading that I wouldn't have discovered when I read their work. And sometimes I discovered writers who I would never have had the patience to read, that I was actually a very impatient reader. And the sort of forced act of being at the McKeldin Library on the University of Maryland for 45 minutes made me sit through something that I might not have had the patience for. And that often led to amazing discoveries the other thing I'll say is that another formative moment I had at a reading was when I went to the Library of Congress for, I don't remember what anniversary of the Poet Laureate program it was, the poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, um, but William 
Meredith was reading, and William Meredith had had many strokes at this point. He had been the poet laureate, and he had had many, many strokes. It was he was very much debilitated, and they helped him to the stage, and um, he was drooling a bit. His words were difficult to understand, and everyone in the audience sat with great respect, with great reverence, and this person who I think in most of American life would have been discarded. Um, if you think about the way the internet reacted when Kim Novak showed up the authors and people were like, ah, oh, she's Kim Novak. She was so pretty and now she looks terrible. And Twitter was just sort of cruel. Um, that I was in a room full of people who really cared about the artist as well as the art and weren't going to discard him. And I really thought, you know, this is kind of a community I want to be a part of. So I had all of these kinds of interactions with readings and then it became something I could do when I started teaching at the MCC. And I have always loved um, KGB, the Monday Night Poetry KGB series that uh, David Lehman and Star Black started. And so that was something I was really excited to be invited to do. And then I, Paul um, Romero, who started the Bryant Park series, I wanted to be in that series so much when he started it. And so to kind of now be the person who coordinates it is, is kind of exciting. There's, there's a sense of having made it. Um, that's another thing that maybe, I don't know if that's the same or different now, but when I was, when I was younger, giving a reading was, was kind of a big deal. That being invited to give a reading, you know, really excited me. And so that I can curate that for other people now is uh, a wonderful experience that I just really enjoy. I am actually just now picking my set list for today's reading. I generally don't plan my readings ahead of time because if I do, then I will become anxious about the reading itself. And I like to compartmentalize and just not really think about the reading until I'm in the space. And I even sometimes change my reading list depending on what people who have read before me are reading because I like to put poems in conversation with their poems. So the truth is I actually don't know what I'm reading today. I do have my book with me, which came out a year ago. I know that I should read from that book to promote it. I also have some new poems that I would like to share, but the thing is, is this is such a dynamic setting because we're outside and we're in a park and there's traffic. It feels like it's, it's not even like the right space for those poems, which are set in Maine and they're about like domestic conflict. So they don't really, they feel like sort of indoor poems as opposed to outdoor poems. So I am going to have to sit here and like take the smells and sounds in for a little bit before I can really figure out what I want to put out there this evening. Hey, so um, these voice notes are really great because I drive home, I teach in the Bronx, and I live in Brooklyn, and so I use these afternoon voice notes to kind of capture my thoughts anyway, uh, whether to myself or to other people on various uh, messaging apps. So, so yeah, thank you so much for the chance to address your questions about readings and about performance. I think what I love about doing readings is that it returns me over and over and over again to the way in which poetry 
lives in the body as well as on the page or in pixels on the screen. It allows for me to kind of think about how the language, how the line breaks, how the stanza structures, all those, all those formal things can act as musical notation, that they are signals and sparks for how I might um, give new kinds of life to the, to the elements in, of, of, my, of, my, of my work. Um, I remember Sonia Sanchez once saying to a class that the ear will catch what the eye cannot. And I'm paraphrasing um, her line. And, and she brought that up because she was urging us to continually read in kind of an incantatory way, read our lines aloud, like not just to quietly hammer together a poem, but to always, always, always incorporate into our process something about sharing the work with others, giving volume, giving voice, giving softness, thinking about where lines need to end because you're running out of breath. Think about which words have percussion behind them, uh, which words have fluidity behind them, all that and all that. And I think an extension of that beyond the editing process is the performance process. That hearing the poem aloud and hearing the reactions of the audience, the gathered congregation, maybe is another way of putting it, uh, allows for us all to see all these, these, these deeper facets to what makes that poem that poem. I'm putting together the poems to read tomorrow and I'm thinking to make a bouquet of sunflowers. I'm typing out the famous Blake Sunflower, a couple of sunflower sonnets by June Jordan and a Ginsberg Sunflower Sutra, and I will end with a sunflower poem that I wrote, which is the postscript to my book-length poem. Hi, this is Rachel Zucker, founder and host of Commonplace. You're listening to episode 116. You just heard from poets Jason Schneiderman, Kate Marvin, R.A. Villanueva, and Lynn Shu, responding in audio messages to my questions about poetry readings, by which I mean specifically live, in-person poetry readings. I asked these four poets about how they each prepare to give or host a reading, about how reading their poems before a live audience is part of their creative practice and process, and about the pleasures and challenges of live readings. If you've been listening to Commonplace or know my writing, you know I've been interested in the role of performance and performativity in art and poetry for a very long time. I speak about performance and performativity at length and in depth in Commonplace episode 114, Live and Embodied, with choreographer Hope Moore and writer Elisa Harad. And in episode 109, with poet and saxophonist Joy Harjo. And in episode 102, with violinist and composer Rebecca Wokstein. And in episode 99, with poet, librettist, performer, Douglas Kearney. 
But performativity, audience, authenticity, and where a piece of language lives are concerns that come up in every commonplace conversation I have. These are concerns I'm nowhere near finished exploring in my own work on the page and with commonplace. I love poetry readings. Or I used to. Or I have often, before COVID, loved many poetry readings. Yeah, I think that's more accurate. What's definitely true is that the experience of reading in front of a live audience has always been an essential part of my writing and editing process, and I wanted to create a series of episodes to investigate why, how, so what. Reading hot-off-the-press poems is a near compulsion of mine, so preparing to give a reading almost always leads me to write or finish a new poem, and then... Reading that newly finished poem at a reading in front of a live audience always makes me realize, usually with a certain amount of shame and terror, that the poem is not finished. And I've always felt a little sheepish about admitting this, but being in the audience of a poetry reading is one of my favorite places and times to write. For the rest of this episode... You will hear Jason, Kate, Ron, Lynn, and I talk about hosting or participating in readings, and then you'll hear some excerpts from the June 6th, 2023 reading at Bryant Park, hosted by Jason Schneiderman, that Kate, Ron, Lynn, and I participated in. You'll also hear from some of the members of the audience who were present that evening. I'll be back soon to give you more information about this episode and the podcast. Until then... Welcome to the Gathered Congregation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing and thinking about the role of poetry readings and how and where poetry lives in the body. If you're hosting, I think that the most important thing to do is to know the work of the people you're hosting. I think a lot of times we as poets, you know, someone's paying you a lot of money. If you're, if you're going, you know, if you're getting a plane ticket and a hotel room and you get to a university and the person who introduces you is just reading your biography from the back of a book. Um, okay, fine. I mean, you're, you know, you're being compensated in other ways, but if you're, if you're hosting a reading series and the reader is reading for very little, for a nominal fee, for the chance to sell their books, just, as a favor, um, just as something that they're doing because you ask them to do, particularly if they're traveling. I think that the most important thing to do is show the audience that you value them by being familiar with their work. So I really love to give introductions. And I learned this from many people. I learned this from Phyllis Levin at the University of Maryland. I learned this from Nat Yeager at KGB. Um, The legend was that David Lehman would do these incredible introductions with no notes that he just kind of knew everyone's entire career. Um, And so I like, I think that by giving introductions that let the reader know that I know their work and that I'm invested in it and that I care about it, it tells the audience that it's something to care about. It tells the audience that it's not something to just kind of show up and get through that it's a really exciting event. And I think that that energy kind of carries through. When you write poems and you put them out in the world, you don't actually get to be part of 
the poem's experience with the reader. And it's really great to be there with your own poem in the moment and hearing it. And a lot of times I feel like I sort of have forgotten the poem or I'm just sort of getting to know the poem again. It's almost like someone else has read it or written it. And that's really exciting. And it's also just amazing to be in the company of people who care about poetry and appreciate it. Because, um, you know, I, I think that most writers have close friendships with other writers, but we don't generally spend, you know, our sort of public facing time with people who are as invested in poetry as, as we are ourselves. So that's just generally thrilling. And it also really feels like an honor to be able to have people listen to me. Still, after all these years, that's something I will like never, ever take for granted. Um, and in fact, I do live in fear of boring people when I'm reading. So there's that. I don't think there's anything I hate per se about readings, but I think what is always a challenge is the way in which a, a performance depends upon the the ears and the eyes and the hearts of the people being performed to. And so there's always uncertainty about what will be received and how they are receiving it. <laughs> there's there's such a, a feeling of um, inadequacy when the things that you're excited about aren't responded to with any kind of with, with sort of like medium excitement, you know? Like when the crowd goes mild instead of wild to be corny with a rhyme I mean that's what I'm that's what I'm consistently nervous about obviously right that you you're pouring your heart out and and trying to uh, share something about what you need to reckon with and you just get blank stares or they roll their eyes or <laughs> they're 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 checked out and checking their phones or something that's the that's the grand risk, right? And I think I I, I don't hate that per se, but as it's happening, um, it doesn't feel great. But then again, in some ways, like that's it's a, a necessary vulnerability. I don't like the emphasis on the author at readings, which is the convention. The author reads their work and there's a kind of authenticity to the experience of listening which is attached to the personality of the writer uh, and I find this to be troubling mainly because this is not at all how I relate to my poems. That said, I do like giving voice to my poems, to poems in general, and I find this to be a wholly separate kind of art that I'm very interested in. I've had some beautiful, funny, weird, wild experiences at poetry readings, including the time Ross Gay tossed fresh figs out of a paper bag into a large audience at the New School before reading his poem about figs. The time a huge horse, written by a blind equestrian, entered, I know this sounds like a dream I had, but it's actually happened, the blind equestrian riding a horse entered Jupiter Hammond's barn on Long Island, in which a room full of underdressed New York City poets were listening to Richard Howard read. 
And then the horse defecated all over the floor, and the freezing poets, including me, foolishly began crying out in terror and trying to stand on folding chairs, which is never a good idea. I've got so many stories about uninvited non-human animals at poetry readings, about crying in the bathroom stall before reading for the first and so far only time with Alice Notley, about Jory Graham helping John Ashbery up onto the stage, about reading with Jory in a small venue on the Lower East Side, during which she insistently turned off the spotlight on her so that we were reading in near darkness instead. I haven't talked very much about this part of my life on Commonplace, but it's a really important part of my life. In March of this year, I gave an IRL reading at the Lower East Side Bookstore and Event Space PT Knitwear with poet Will Harris, author of the newly published Brother Poem, and poet Jose Oliveres, author of the newly published Promises of Gold. There was a ton going on for me that night. I hadn't done a live reading in a very long time. I'd never read with Harris or Oliveras, had read Harris's newest book just a few days earlier on the plane home from Seattle, and I hadn't even gotten a copy of Oliveras's book, Promises of Gold, yet. Early the next morning, I was flying internationally and very freaked out about that. I was worried about catching COVID or giving someone COVID at the reading. I'd never been to the location before, I didn't know the organizers, and I didn't understand what my role was. The reading program and advertisement said that this was an event in honor of the release of Will Harris's new book, and that he'd be in conversation with me and Jose Oliveras, so I wasn't sure if they were expecting me to read from my own work or interview Harris. I asked the venue if they were planning to record the reading, and if so, could I use the audio for a possible Commonplace episode? I had this idea that I could just record the reading and then just do a tiny little bit of editing and sound audio massaging and then present it as an episode. And this would be totally fascinating to all the commonplace listeners. It was a long subway ride and walk from my home in Washington Heights. I stopped at three stores on the way to the venue to find some mints because I felt like I had really bad breath in underneath my mask. But all the bodegas have been replaced with dispensaries and only edibles, some as mints, were to be found. It was, to say the least, an odd reading. I did not buy THC or CBD mints. That's not what made it weird. It was very sparsely attended. Too many bookstore employees, not enough book buyers. I think there were about three people in the audience, which for three readers is a very weird feeling. Jose read first, then introduced me. As I stood up to read, my watch sent me two alerts. This is the only time this has ever happened. My heart rate had shot up into the 180s. I had no idea I was so nervous. I was really surprised. Anyway, I read two long poems, one new, one old, and then I introduced Will Harris. After Will read, we sat in a row facing these three members of the audience uh, with microphones, and we talked. I, of course, asked Will uh, initially, had he ever been romantically involved with another only child, and then told him about the extreme intensity of my post-marriage relationship and breakup with a man who, like me, is an only child. Will and Jose seemed 
confused, to say the least, about what this had to do with poetry, but I could not stop talking about it. I remember being entranced and moved by Will and Jose's readings while we were reading, and sort of by the odd but interesting conversation we had afterward, but when I listened back to the recorded audio, it was boring, embarrassing, poor sound quality. It was really hard to listen to, and listening to it and trying to make it into a commonplace episode reminded me of choreographer Hope Moore saying, video of dance is a poor simulacrum. I don't know why I have to learn this lesson over and over again, but you can't just record a live reading and play it on your RSS feed and have it be a good podcast episode. The Bryant Park Reading Series is unlike other reading series because it's outdoors, which creates a little bit of terror because the weather is always threatening to do something awful to you. Um, it's in a space that's heavily trafficked. So there's a, there's a way in which you are sequestered and isolated in the reading room. Like clearly this space has been marked out for you, but you're also reading to whoever's walking past and there are just people kind of coming in and going out. And it feels very New York to me that it's this sort of pop-up experience that's part of many other experiences but embedded in this certain way that's also because it's outside um, precarious that you're always worried. Is it going to rain? Is it going to rain? The last time I read for this series was easily 15 years ago. I think it might have actually been in 2005. So nearly 20 years ago. And this was pre-cell phone. And um, so I had a bunch of my poems with me and some of them were even typewritten. They were the only original copies of the, of the poem because I used to write, write all my poems on a manual typewriter. And, um, and I, it was an outdoor reading and my poems started to blow away. And it was totally terrifying and people in the audience gasped. But fortunately I managed to hang on to the poem that was blowing away that I thought at the time was so very precious, but it turned out to probably not be a very good one. Um, so that's the last time I read here. And I have to say, I, I, I feel a little bit of anxiety about reading in this setting um, because it just seems like a very strange place to be reading poems. But whatever, you've got to do what you got to do. So why did I agree to do this reading in Bryant Park? First and foremost, I was excited by the possibility of sharing work to a crowd that wasn't ostensibly gathered in a bookstore for a launch or a Q&A. Right? I think there's something so uh, lovely about the freedom of people not having to buy tickets. They just kind of circulate and move and listen and... Um, live their lives with us in the background or in the foreground of that moment. What an honor to, to, to find oneself welcomed into the sort of everyday flow of someone else's life. It is rare. It is extraordinary to, to take part in a reading series that's 
that is so kind of like free form and it's being embedded in people just passing through and listening and moving through, right? Like they're doing it of their own um, curiosity and their own connection beyond. I mean, the venue is, is, is life. I don't love doing readings, but I do like it as a kind of communal practice. Um, and as I tend to read with other poets, what I like best is to listen to the other readers, which is always a treat. I just took part in Eileen's pathetic happening at St. Mark's last Sunday, and it was amazing. A lot of writers read their own pieces from the anthology, and a lot of other writers, artists, musicians, performers, etc., took on reading works by others. I read an excerpt from Kafka's letter to his father, for example, and there were four stages with simultaneous performances, and the evening went on, oh, I don't know, for eight or nine hours. I didn't stay the whole time because our whole family was there. And it was one of those events where there were dogs and babies and the freedom to be promiscuous and move around. It was a truly beautiful poetry island, a multiverse in dimension, time, language, improvisation, spontaneity, and friendship. The last time I read in the Bryant Park reading series was 2015. I can't remember who was hosting, and forgive me, there may have been a fourth reader as well, but I know it was me, Wayne Kostenbaum, and Jason Schneiderman who were slated to read. And what I remember is that I really, really wanted to read something that Wayne and Jason would like, something a bit daring and risque. Wayne had been my teacher as an undergrad at Yale and has been incredibly supportive of my work over the years. I wanted to impress him. I wanted to show up for him and Jason. Also, I'd been working on my lecture on confessional poetry and thinking about direct address and how Jason and Wayne were part of my coterie. I spent most of the days and nights leading up to that reading writing and editing two poems, Confessional and Planet Hulk, that would later become central in my book Sound Machine. So here I was again with a chance to show up for or show off for Jason and for or with Kate, Ron, and Lynn. For me, picking what to read is a balance of wanting to read new work, work that is appropriate or delightfully inappropriate for the expected audience. And perhaps most importantly, I choose what to read as part of an, a lifelong, loving, engaged conversation with other poets and their work. So on June 6th, I arrived early at Bryant Park with my audio equipment. I was coming directly from teaching the intensive summer poetry workshop at NYU that I've taught in for many, many years. It's a program called Writers in New York. I hadn't done many public readings since COVID, but I felt okay about this one since it was outside. Although when I got out of the subway near Bryant Park, I could not figure out what was going on with the sky. It seemed unnaturally dark for 5.15 in the summer, and there was a funny smell. When I got to what's called the reading room, I saw Kate Marvin sitting on a park bench talking into the speaker end of her phone. She waved at me, indicating that she was recording responses to my questions. I talked to the sound guy, to Jason, to some students of mine. I set up my phone on a tripod, and then I tried to just sit down and settle my nerves.
the audience is wonderful. And they, I think, I, I don't really know who the audience is. I have never surveyed them. My sense is that they're a combination of the literati, the people who pay attention to what free culture there is in New York. You know, the old joke about New York, you have to have time or money. If you have time, you can see amazing things and wait in line and figure out where the good things are. If you have money, you can afford to go see an $800 Broadway musical. But the audience is wonderful. They tend to be very devoted to the authors. They tend to be very interested and very engaged. They buy a lot of books. I do think that there is something special about live readings to the point where when we had to move to Zoom for COVID on KGB, I did not want to do recordings. I did not want to have an archive of recordings because I thought that the specialness exists in the moment, in the in the moment of the performance. You know, you can watch a recording of a Broadway musical, but it's not the same, right? I mean, the whole point of the Broadway musical, or, or cabaret actually is probably a better um, analog, because when you go to cabaret, if you love cabaret, and I love cabaret, um, the recordings are often not good because it takes a lot of production to make a recording sound good. And if you're just watching, you know, someone with their iPhone recording, whoever it is that's singing at uh, Joe's Pub, whether it's Martha Graham Cracker or Justin Vivian Bond or Patti LuPone or Bridget Everett, you get a sense of what it was like, but you don't really have the full experience, right? The, the That aura, that specialness is really in the space, in being there together. But I'm, I'm glad that I, that I did end up recording those. And I think that that archive has become a really beautiful archive. And I was able to introduce Richard McCann, who supported me very early in my career, and to be able to introduce him and for him to respond to that was really beautiful. And then he died very shortly after. I had not realized how sick he was. And having that video is actually a really nice thing to be able to return to. One of the greatest things about doing readings is so you get to read with other people. And it's a real honor because sometimes you'll get their fans or their friends coming and hearing you speak. But then you also get to hear like really wonderful poems by other people and be part of that. And that's so exciting after, you know, a lot of the work we do is totally alone and, and in solitude. And um, so it's really great to see other people doing their thing. And it gives me like a lot of hope and inspiration. I want to be careful about where I start and where I leave things off. Especially since the audience is going to be largely composed of strangers out there in the world walking through Bryant Park, curious. Some people are there on purpose, some people are not. They're coming from work, they're leaving work. And so it, it, it feels like a chance to engage in poetry in a space that's not specialized. I have to open up with something that will activate me and activate them. Um, something that is immediate. It's gotta be immediate, right? Like I don't want the more, I don't know, esoteric or obscure poems in my collections to, to, to be the ones I highlight. I want to think about what it might feel for someone to Im 
encounter a piece first in the air, in my voice, with my breath, um, as it combines with and uh, collides with and clashes with the noise of Manhattan. I like the idea of participating in something that takes place in, in, in a public and outdoor space in the middle of the city where the audience may not necessarily be a poetry audience and where many modes of listening and attention can be activated and put in play. All right, it's six o'clock. We can get started. You're a beautiful audience. You're filling in. Have a seat if you're milling about. Um, we're very friendly. This is um, Poetry in Bryant Park. We're here every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Um, this is our second week. and I don't really know what this episode is. It's not a conversation. It's not the recording of a reading, although you're about to hear excerpts from the reading. Maybe it's an audio essay. I don't know. I know that I've been listening to this audio for months, letting it lead me, working with it the way I work with language on the page. I've got more episodes coming up on the same theme of performance, including an incredible one with Fred Moten and Ronaldo Wilson, as well as some more traditionally formatted but never very traditional conversations with Laurel Snyder, Mary Rufel, and a guest-hosted conversation with Sharif Shanahan and Safia Elhello. We've got great books to give away to members of the Commonplace Book Club for this episode, including Jason Schneiderman's Hold Me Tight, courtesy of Red Hen Press, Kate Marvin's Event Horizon, courtesy of Copper Canyon, R.A. Villanueva's Reliquaria, courtesy of University of Nebraska Press, Lynn Shoes, and those ashen heaps that cantilevered vase of moonlight, courtesy of Wave Books, Jose Oliveras's Promises of Gold, courtesy of Henry Holt, and Will Harris's Brother Poem, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press. All patrons will get access to the full video of this reading, available on the Commonplace YouTube channel. My goal with this episode was to give you, Commonplace listener, a sense of what it felt like to be there on June 6th, 2023, with Jason, Kate, Ron, Lynn, and the members of the audience. To be outside in a large, bustling, public New York City park a block away from the New York Public Library and midtown Manhattan as the sky turned sepia from the wildfires in Canada. To be there reading and listening to poetry together before our West Coast friends told us to wear masks outside or better yet, get the hell inside. This is when we were worried about the possibility of rain or our poems flying away in the wind or boring the audience. Thank you for being part of my gathered congregation Enjoy the show. And um, we're going to jump right into our readings. Uh, we have Kate Marvin, Ari Villanueva, uh, Rachel Zucker, and Lynn Shu. 
and we will go straight through. I will be doing introductions. Um, make sure that you do read the bios on the flyer. Um, the introductions I give are a little bit different than those. It's important to know what they published and where they went to school and all the prizes they've won, but my interests are a little bit different. And um, please do buy books. Um, the wonderful Kino Kinia bookstore is here with all of the author's titles, um, including my own. And everyone will hang out afterwards, and we would love to sign the books for you. Um, I always, I'll, I'll make this joke because it might end up on uh, Rachel's podcast, which is you can't take the poets home, but you can take the books home. That's okay. All right. Our first reader is Kate Marvin. Um, Kate Marvin is a force of American poetry, an absolute dynamo whose take-no-prisoners poems might require us to replace the word confessionalism with confrontationalism. In Marvin's work, there is a clear-eyed analysis that is often tinged with a dynamic frustration and a propulsive anger, a kind of directness that bends the lyric with its own gravity. Please welcome Kate Marvin. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Is this good? Um, I'm going to start out with a few new poems actually really in response to Jason's introduction because I was like, oh, okay, then I will read that super confessional poem that I was hesitant to share. Um, so this is um, a poem that um, I don't even know how to introduce these poems. I'm so happy to be here with these poets. It's so exciting to be reading here. I read here in 2005 and it was very terrifying because this wind came and almost blew my poems away. And so I'm just it's not doing that now. So this is a poem called Pleasure. And um, I think you'll see where it's coming from. Pleasure. I enjoy not sleeping next to you. I love not lying beside you in bed. Particularly delicious is not waking up beside you. Hours wander by like bears rummaging trash, like deer nosing a garden in which I do not think of you or even remember knowing you. It's great. Plants grow. The sun does its job. There are all kinds of little wildflowers in the yard that I need to learn the names of, rather than mow them over. The stomach of the mammal that is my lover has a sheen in the sun that strikes me down, so I sink my head beneath the freezing water of the ocean we swim in together, allowing the current to carry our buoyant bodies bobbing glad in sun along eddies, and we hold hands even when walking in the grocery store, not like when you would leave the car after we parked and head in ten paces ahead of me and later leave me at the register to pay. Sometimes I talk about you with my lover, but never in the manner I explain flowers I do not know the names of, because when I talk about you, it is like describing a movie with a bad plot. And when my lover bends over me at midnight and hooks his arm beneath me to carry me like a current, I easily forgive you, and I move without regret to take him in with recognition of light warbling. And I know you are wincing right now reading this intimacy. And now you owe me one because I got you to read again. You always passed yourself off as a reader. You were no reader. You could have read me every day if you had liked. You could have licked me inside out if you had liked. You could have liked me so much better. I like many things I did not like now that I am without you. I like all things except you. 
But what I like best is the sun in the room in which my lover wakes up and stands on getting out of bed, and his body stretching that the gleams of his furred stomach strikes me down with its beauty. And yes, it is like being handed a diamond, and I can't look away, and I'd swim like tiny fish between the gaps in his teeth. And I very consciously chose to not re-erect the mirror that used to sit atop our dresser in which we used to see ourselves making love, if you want to call it that, because never do I want to see my body back in that container. I've never read that poem aloud. So thanks for being there with me. <laughs> um, so I'm going to um, transition into a poem from my book. And um, this is a poem about my kid. Actually, I'm gonna, there's a poem I'm going to read before this that will sort of fit well into it. And this is called, it's called In Storage. African masks purchased at flea markets make romantic gifts. It was heraldic in intent, and I believed it meant my own head was iconic. Traumatic brain injuries are finally being recognized as prevalent in women who have been hit in the head. The lady on the radio talking about it only just barely got her research study funded for the heads of women, while over a thousand studies of man heads have happened already. Women get hit. A lot. But let's focus on my garage. My ex lowered his voice and sounded almost sympathetic when he told me I ought to look at the manner in which cold got in through a particular doorway, see about sealing it up. He said, this is going to be your house. And he said it as if he were pronouncing an honor and, and or granting me a great responsibility. And because I was afraid of his temper, I did not laugh because the house was already mine. I've since seen to inviting the many servicemen over to install their brotherly advice. One suggests my furnace hasn't been loved up enough. He notes the cobwebs in the basement reveal moisture. Because, you know, there's always something trying to get in, do a number, finger its nameless menace while you're crumbling down in the cellar alongside your foundation. It just got cold in here. The cold is coming in. The mass teeth are chattering in the garage where they are stored, just a couple of dozen or so feet away from my face. I wonder, are they cold, as cold as I am? A lot of poems in my fourth book, there's a bunch of poems about my kid, and what was complicated about it was they were a daughter for a really long time, and they are no longer a daughter. And so, um, so I had to like transition. I transition. I transitioned them into final poem. And um, this poem is called "They Them Verarchy," and it's in three parts. It didn't matter that my daughter turned into a sun and then back again into a flame and cut their hair off and flew up into the sky with a burst of feathers I'd used to dust away the cobwebs. Or that I'd taken to dressing as a battered women's hotline that my stalker was trying to pretend we'd never stood before that judge in Essex County who stated, there is no reason you ever need to talk to her again. Instead, writing me an email as if we'd remained friends. Or that the woman who ran the session on domestic abuse said, it only takes a minute of stopping oxygen from getting to the brain to cause brain damage, gestures, her hands grabbing at her throat on the Zoom screen. I too have been strangled. Women's faces collect in rows of chocolate box squares on my laptop. Each one may as well be me. We look back at one another.
too. I was curled up inside my own daughter, waiting for her to ask for a razor. She was getting to be that age. Her fingernails were long and elegant as spoons, not gnawed like mine. Her teeth I love a lot, yellow ivory tablets behind plush lips. She had inherited the nostrils of my grandmother. They were tiny and imperious as those of a hippopotamus. In fact, the one prayer I'd made was for her to not end up with this particular nose. But when I saw it on her, I saw she pulled it off. It was cruelly, it was bitterly, cruelly cute. A challenge because if her nose was stuffy, folks could see right up it. She was not a feminine daughter either, which suited me better. She had sliced the ice skates right off her ankles and refused to dance. Her hands, however, were almost unnaturally feminine. The digits slender, nails tapered. It's the hands that will give them away. Three, my daughter is gone. She snuffed her name. It meant light. I spent months thinking it up. When they were four, the man I was with told me he thought my kid had a bad streak. This coming from a blackout drunk who spent his days looking out from his second-story window, chain-smoking, casting terrible stares down at me whenever I pulled into the driveway. They can't remember any of this, nor the day I scooped them up into my arms, put them in the car, and we drove away. Perhaps it feels this way to them, like they are driving away from something dangerous, their name. A name becomes one's face. Sliding the wand, the nurse said, I think it's a girl. Now women's faces collect like tears in a spoon. Who in their right mind wants to be poured in along with them? We don't keep enough mirrors in this house. They are more beautiful than they realize. And I'm going to end there. Thank you for listening. Our next reader is Ron Villanueva. And when I call Ron Villanueva a poet of decency, what I mean is that his work is suffused with a quality of kindness that is rarely rewarded, that, but, we but that we find in our best hours. Villanueva's work is narrative, revisiting events and stories in ways that both interrogate and heal, and in writing about fatherhood, brings a generosity and gentleness that recognizes how hard it is to find a place in this world and in making that place for his child among the ghosts of the past, finds a place for the reader. Please welcome Ari Villanueva. Hi, everyone. Uh, <laughs> when Jason was giving that, that introduction, I felt like I was, at my eulogy, I was here at my eulogy. Thank you for being here, everyone. Fish heads. Yank free at the gills from cartilage and spine, these fish heads my mother cleans, whose bodies she scales and throws all into salt water and crushed tamarind. At dinner, she alone will spoon out their eyes with their fingers and suck down each pair as we watch. You see? This is why the three of you could never hide anything from me. As though those organs brought her sight to be soaked through the tongue. When I tell her I've tried to make this stew from memory, she warns, don't waste what should be eaten. 
and reminds me of every delicate gift we have thrown away. Tilapia stomach best soured with vinegar, milkfish liver to melt against the dome of the mouth. That after church, a bucket of chicken soon became a blessing of wing gristle and skin, dark meat no one else wanted to save. We refused to taste her gizzards and hearts fried in fat, mocked the smell of pig blood curdled on the stove, wish gone her tripe steamed with beef bullion and onion broth. After my brother and sister push aside bowls of baby squid in garlic ink and gag at my mention of ducks in their shells boiled alive in brine, my mother believes I was the only one to share in such things. Which maybe means, she says, in some former life you and I were seabirds or vampires or wolves. I'm going to read poems from something new. I hope one day this will be a book. Yeah, so I'm a dad now. That happened like seven years ago. Um, and so it's bizarre to think of changing polarities from writing as the son inheriting things to the father maybe messing my children up. Uh, and so uh, these are poems. My first one's about my daughter. Uh, before the only thing that could put her to bed was uh, we don't talk about Bruno, like on endless loop. The only thing that could put her to sleep was an endless loop of Rufus Wainwright's version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. It's from Shrek. It's not like she's really classy. She's from Shrek. <laughs> Hallelujah. Sings the choir and I reach low. Hallelujah. While our daughter snores on my shoulder, drools onto my neck. What dreams I can remember are the dreams that frighten me most. Ice and hairline cracks on the wings near takeoff, a white gray mass among contrast studies, nurses leaving us, tightening their smiles. There is a theater blistered by bomblets, a schoolyard scattered with phones, peaches, and triage tents. There are letters left in the desert and acres of cypress burning, Patmos and the Morns, wellheads and the abyssal, plains of the gulf burning still. I know this child will learn to curse the sound of my voice. and for my son. Um, the title is Annus Mirabilis, which in Latin means Year of Miracles. Annus Mirabilis. From the shallows, our son watches me play dead. He sits on river rocks, chucking sand and burying strawberries while I float downstream, breath wound bright in the gut, a body both here and of other waters. The day he was born, midwives touched your face, your hands, measured nerve and pulse dripped saline along your thigh, numbered blades. Their ceremony for the first cuts, before swaddling blankets, fever syrups, bath time and mud. 
These are places the boy is ticklish. Lunette of the earlobe, kneecaps, madrigal fat of the belly, collarbone, toes. These are words he knows, but will not say. Yes, horse, sleep, white. Again, the boy cries himself hoarse as we sing through these hours right before dawn. First the alphabet, then twinkle, twinkle, little star. Then the great pretender. Our words like foxes, like milk teeth. We can't hold him quiet. His body must, they say, learn now about hunger, about being alone. So we hum and shh into the yellow bruise of Sunday. Melodies, the shape of bluets and yearlings, blood pudding, and this worry, this awe we have no name for. When he asks, make no mention of those names we saved for the children we lost. His ghost siblings, their phantom initials. Of tests and lemongrass, nettle leaf and sharps, forms in triplicate clinics painted with lambs, Comets, maps to nerve meridians' hearts, say nothing. Never speak of that quiet after the kicking stopped. Believe in time, he'll learn ourselves betray each miracle and wild conundrum they are coded to bear. And if he needs an answer, give him morning mass off West 16th. How aisle and chancel roared with lilies and comets how we dared a new unknown to find us there in song. Last poem, thank you for listening. Um, so you have a line and this side of, I was gonna say the room, the universe, you, you, you have a line. Are we ready? The answer is yes, yes? Okay, okay. Your line is, the world has always been ending. And your reply is, yes. This poem is called Mass. The world has always been ending, I said, and you said. Today, half lost in the senderos among its dry brush and thorns, I hear my mother's voice in the rocks. I see in the rust plains and lava bulbs and cairns stacked as markers her cells massing upon her heart, her lungs, running riot along her sternum. Soon the nights of marrow talk, of jabs and the seven last words, serum nights with vials, the joyful mysteries, thumbs on decades falling asleep. I light a match with the end of another, warm poisons and gauze for the new year. She said, and I said yes. Today we walk bearing hymnals and lilacs for the gazebo green, for stairwells and chalks drawn to mark the hem of a body. We bring each place its dirge in the shape of teeth, slugs, a tongue pressed to concrete, its fugue scored for sirens and windpipes, pellet guns and bells. We bless the blue of this wide winter sky above our city for
for once. Let it mean more to us than smoke, more than blood starved of air beneath skin, more than their anthems hollowed for a field for stars dying and dead. He said, and you said, today they are burning the names of the boys they are shooting in the street. This because we and they know ashes mean undone leads and muzzles loosen floodlights and flares, eyes doused with milk. At the chapel for Vespers, a woman holds a globe. She has decked with poppies and birch tar and foil. Her son traces a book of heralds and dragons colors in his palm. Now the Magnificat. Now I am down on my knees sure only that the fires will come again and again. Thank you. As, as you can imagine, as the a host of an outdoor reading series, I start obsessively checking the weather um, over the weekend. And Apple weather actually thinks it's raining right now, right here. Um, which is interesting, but it also had the description that today is of concern for sensitive groups. And I was like, we're poets. Like that's like, that's our job description, sensitive group. Um, anyway, our next reader is Lynn Shu. Um, I'm really excited to welcome Lynn Shu here. She is a dynamic and fascinating poet, um, often discussed in association with intellectual movements like critical theory and surrealism. The influences make her work a kind of shifting prism a wrought object or faceted gem that shines a new light depending on how the jewel is held. On the page, Shu's work often cuts back against itself, resonances lingering as when a tuning fork is struck to orient the musician, but the audience continues to hear its vibration as the orchestra plays forward. I'm very excited. Please welcome Lin Shu. Thank you for accommodating my height. And thank you so much, Jason. That was so beautiful. I wish, I wish it does that. I mean, thank you. I hope it does that. Um, so I'm going to, I decided today I would sort of put together, arrange a bouquet of sunflowers um, for us, um, which means that some of them are not mine. Um, I'm going to read three sunflowers that are not mine and then one longer sunflower um, that is mine. And the first sunflower is by William Blake. Ah, sunflower. Remember this one? Do you know this one? It's so beautiful. Ah, sunflower, weary of time. Who counts the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done? where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, and these two are, I don't know if you know the poet June Jordan. She um, actually w went to school at Barnard and then um, taught at a variety of places. And at, towards the end of her life, she died in 2002 um, and she was teaching at UC Berkeley. And I began, I, I began going to UC Berkeley in 2002. And um, so, but I knew her from the 
she started Poetry for the People, and um, she has two sunflower sonnets that she wrote over the course of many years, so they don't really kind of move together in time, but they move together in, um, in other ways. Sunflower sonnet number one. But if I tell you how my heart swings wide enough to motivate flirtations with the trees or how the happiness of passion freaks inside me, will you then believe the faithful yearning freeze on random, fast explosions that I place upon my lust? Or must I say the streets are bare unless it is your door I face, unless they are your eyes that rare as tulips on a cold night, trick my mind to oranges and yellow flames around a seed as deep as anyone may find. In magic, what do you need? I'll give you that, I hope, and more, but don't you be the one to choose me, poor. Sunflower Sonnet Number 2 by June Jordan. Supposing we could just go on as two voracious in the days apart, as well as when we side by side, the many ways we do that, well, I would consider then perfection possible, or else worthwhile to think about, which is to say, I guess the costs of long term tend to pile up, block and complicate, erase away the accidental, temporary, near thing, pulse beat promises one makes, because the chance the easy new is there in front of you, but still, perfection takes some sacrifice of falling stars for rare, and there are stars, none of you to spare. I also want to thank the other readers because I think it's a gift to hear you all. I mean, I've never heard you all read, and I've read your work, so I, it's thank you for giving me that gift. Okay, so this is my... Um, Sunflower. So this book um, and those ashen heaps, that cantilevered vase of moonlight is a book-length poem. And I'm going to read you the postscript of that book, uh, this book. And I, I wonder if you would mind closing your eyes. I read to you with your eyes closed because you can hear the city. I mean, the city is so alive in the listening. And the angel that presided over my birth said, little creature formed of joy and mirth, go love without the help of anything on earth. I open my eyes as a sunflower. The world trembles through my body, longitude, latitude. I am dancing, 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 born dancing. At last, I am here in the thickness of five vertigos, the five in the middle, like the interior of four o'clock or Friday, between six and seven, in the intones of the tamarind. Tamarind. Its green syllable unfurls my moon-like face, beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. I close my eyes and open them again within myself. The great God with many hands churning, churning in a temple whose walls are no longer there and there just now is the totality, an infinitely delicate delicateness, my birth postponed by the punctual inquisition of the wheel, by all four faces of the charioteer, and yet 
I simply think myself up one by one. I open the doors, confronting the empty universe for the entire duration of the counterfeit. And the wheels, my masters, endlessly generating, passo umbilico, passo nada, tele, pathos, passage from cadaver to corolla. The eyes of the corpse, when I open them, again, pure as tiny children. I am speaking your language without actually being you, man, child, justice, mercy. Reality is so close, and yet it is the point of no return. Reality, where the name eats the body and holds it upright. Now, where were we? Oh, yes, dancing, like the procession of jewels connecting one vow to the other in the splendid firmament of time, or the brightness it veils throughout the double of myself. The white blossom on the silver bell made of tin plate and the purest grays of wind. It is five by all the clocks, by all of the thirteen cliffs in the rectitude of its folds, and the sprig of asphodel is passing from the seller's hand. It is for you, this world. The streets, the vinegars, the farewells and the stations and the trains coming and going with glistening windows, the trains passing with fruits and flowers, with the oysters' patience, I follow the egg into its interior, into an afternoon that could have been anyone's. Okay, thank you so much. And let's have a round of applause for Bryant Park and all the people who make this possible, for Chip, who makes the sound um, seem easy, uh, for John, our bookseller, which is a true skill, um, and Gemma, who's been coordinating everything, and Nancy, who isn't here right now, but makes everything run smoothly. Um, and our final reader for tonight, um, and please do stay, please do buy books, and all of the readers will be around to sign them for you, um, is Rachel Zucker. And when my first book came out, my mother expressed surprise and admiration for how completely I had revealed myself on the page. And if I could go back and have that conversation again, I'd say, no, actually, I withheld a lot of myself. You must be thinking of Rachel Zucker. In Rachel's work, a kind of radical honesty prevails, and it creates a propulsive force to her work, a powerful demand for discovery that envelops the reader in its force. Across multiple genres and through interdisciplinary works, Zucker's singular voice treats truth as the apex of ethics. And when Muriel Rukeyser said that if one woman told the truth about her life, the world would split open, well, Rachel did. And the world feels pretty split open right now. Please welcome Rachel Zucker. Okay, so um, I taught a class earlier today. Some of my students are here. And I have a lot of students in this gathering, including some students who I taught um, at the 92nd Street Y in 2011, who have been meeting together without me since, which might be one of my greatest accomplishments, like to teach myself out of the room. And then I have another student who was in my online only 
Um, he, so the heterosexuality is not going great for me. And uh, so here's another poem on the same theme. The language of lovemaking isn't language, which might be why I love it. You tell me you walked through a waterfall of love for her, which may be the language of love, but isn't love-making, at least not with me. I make you come, but that's a matter of semantics. Your seemingly romantic dick pics, texts, and FaceTimes, my novella-length erotica, get us both off. But your actual anybody hotel sex is as casual as losing one's umbrella after getting one's hair done up into what some call an updo, or when wearing silk, or when suddenly needing something sharp and heavy on a clear, dark night. This is not a joke about rubbers. This is about the word lovers, which we aren't. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read two very, very short poems and end. And these poems I wrote, uh, I, so after the romantic interlude with the aforementioned six-pack owning Pacific Northwest dude, I went to a silent retreat that was very quiet compared to this. And it's shocking, but I actually was silent for seven days. And it was fantastic. And it was, it was, it was incredible. And I'm still processing this experience. And um, yeah, I meditated like, I don't know, like six hours a day. It was wild. It was, it was totally incredible. And so now all the poems I've written since just sound like Jane Hirschfield or something. Like, I don't know what to say. This is like a new thing. So nothing is as is alone. Zip, 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 the insects speak from not for the tree. Birds seem to bring the sky closer so we can see it. Awe calls the crow with her black-winged tongue. The breeze sweeps the hillside grasses, then blows dry leaves across my path. There is nothing that is not nature. Language, earth, alive with creatures. Nothing is as is, and nothing is alone. And I'll just read this one final poem, which is really actually a sincere love poem, maybe the most sincere love poem I've ever written. Hi, Laura. I just, I just noticed a, a person. And it's called On the Hindrance of Attachment, which, if you don't know, is like attachment is a problem of sorts in Buddhism because you're attached rather than in the present moment and unattached. But at the same time, attachment is 
maybe all I believe in, really. Um, so how do you remain in that contradiction, in that space in which attachment is everything and also nothing and something to work on your whole life to be deeply attached to others and also something to work on your whole life to be not attached. And this poem is for Michael. On the hindrance of attachment. Sometimes just bird song between our bodies. Sometimes a continent. Do you want to know if I'm still in love with you or still in love with being in love with you? Today, the bowl is a bell and calls us to silence. It sounds and sounds when struck, carries, settles, stays, long after human hearing. There is no one answer and no one to answer to. Once your body was a bell and mine a bowl of sound, nothing can be done about this ecstasy. Thank you. All right, another round of applause for our readers. Um, we will see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. with Mark Doty, Octavia Gonzalez, Lynn Melnick, and Martha Rhodes. And please do stay. Okay. Um, why did you come to the reading today? Uh, to be honest, I came because of you, because I've read your books for a long time, and I really, I both admire them and kind of hate them because I don't know how you do what you do, and it drives me crazy. But also, I, I mean, I wanted to hear the other poets as well. But um, honestly, you were the, you were the big draw for me. Okay, so um, when you say like I don't know how you do it, did you hope maybe that you would like figure that out by seeing me read in person? Uh. I don't think I thought I would figure it out by hearing you read. I don't know it's something you could actually answer for me either. Um, but, um, but I just wanted to say it, and, and maybe you could answer it. I'm not sure. But um, I just really admire the way you, you sound so very natural and conversational, but it's obviously so beautifully crafted. So, like, how does that work? And that... And the intimacy, I mean, is really amazing to me. I really admire it. I'm trying to get there myself. But anyway, I just, oh I, love, I love your work. So. All right, I love that. Okay, hold on. I'm going to sign your book. Hey, Ian. How would you feel about us going up to some people and saying, Rachel would like to know why you are doing Sure. But he's on. It's recording. And... This has been episode 116 of Commonplace with Jason Schneiderman, Kate Marvin, R.A. Villanueva, Lynn Shu, and me, Rachel Zucker. Many thanks to Red Hen Press, Copper Canyon, University of Nebraska Press, and Wave Books. Thank you to the poets for their generous and fascinating responses, to the audience, to the Bryant Park reading series, and to my favorite deputy, 
Ian Fishman. Excuse me. Um, Rachel has deputized me with her equipment, um, and she would like to know why you came to attend this reading tonight. Well, because of her, of course. We're actually two of the people she mentioned that taught that she taught at the 92nd Street Y. And so um, as a teacher, she was wonderful. And, and it was the first time I have heard of her. And ever since, I've been really enjoying her work. So I, I couldn't miss a uh, chance to see her in person. We were, it was 2011. So it's quite remarkable that we still get together. And uh, it must be because Rachel picked us to be together. Well, that is so wonderful that you two um, do that together. I was a student of hers in college. Very so. awesome. And were you? Yeah. Oh, hello. Why we came to the reading? Yeah. Um, to hear Rachel tell the truth about her life and all our lives. <laughs> That's a good answer. Do you have an answer? I'm thinking, thinking. I've, won, I've always wanted to hear Rachel read, and I'm trying to rekindle my writing flame. Cool. Good answer. Excuse me. I have been deputized by Rachel um, to go around and ask people um, for her podcast why they came to this reading tonight. Any answer is... I permissible. Have, I had to go to the cardiologist so I didn't have to go to my evening job so it was an opportunity. He, he, he never gets to come with me because he's usually working but today my friend sent me a Facebook message and said hey if you're going to go to the Bryant Park poetry reading series this summer let me know maybe we can meet up and I was like oh yeah I'm kind of recovering from the academic year I sort of have like uh, whiplash still because we just turned in grades recently and I was like so I, I'm reorienting myself to summer. I'm like, oh, yeah, the Bryant Park Poetry Series, because I, I love coming to it. So uh, it's amazing. It's outside. It's beautiful. You can look up at the tree canopy and just, you know, listen to poetry or look at the famous poet up there. And they're, they're, like, right here. So it's, it's amazing. Hello. Rachel has asked me to ask folks here um, why they came to attend this poetry reading. For class. For class. For class. For class. We love class. Yeah. For, I mean, I wouldn't have said to get out of the smog, but for class. The smog is very noticeable yeah. today. Excuse me, did you attend this reading? I um, did. I'm a former student of hers, and she's asked me to go around and uh, inquire with folks about um, what drew them to this reading tonight and um, it's okay if you don't want to answer as well. Yeah, I, I, I came to see Kate Marvin but I was late oh, okay. um, and, but I was so glad to hear Rachel because that's the first time I've heard her read and um, I just thought it was um, amusingly shocking and really drew me in with her her play on language that would normally seem uh, vulgar or outrageous. Yeah. I really enjoy that about her work, too. Well, thank you. Thank you to the patrons who support the show and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. <laughs>